Hi, and welcome to You've Got Mail. I'm here with my co-host Jake, and we're going to discuss the temperance movement and prohibition. The temperance movement, which turned to prohibition in the 20th century, originated in the 1830s. This movement consisted of hatred towards alcohol and its eradication. But Elliot, where did the origin, where was the origin of such hatred? Well, at this time, women and children were dependent on men. Or if things got tough when men consumed about seven gallons of pure alcohol a year. This wasn't just bad for home life, but became a larger issue when production was hindered by their job performances. The temperance movement originated from a business-centric age. People believed that alcohol was the arch-enemy of progress. The prohibitionist Billy Sunday, a former ball player and Presbyterian evangelist, preached that saloons were the parent crimes and the mother of sins. Like many progressive-era movements, unions would soon join together in a fight to end the production and consumption of alcohol. Examples of such unions were the Women's Christian Temperance Union or the Anti-Saloon League. The former became a powerful force. Women such as Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and others protested for anti-alcohol laws. Frances Willard headed the WCTU from 1879 to 1898, fighting for temperance, moral purity, and the rights of women. The WCTU also wanted to stop child labor, improve education, and fix the living conditions of immigrants. The Anti-Saloon League became one of America's most popular prohibitionist groups by the late 19th to early 20th century. In fact, by 1902, the ASL had branches in 39 states with 200 paid staff members. The organization made it clear that all Americans know that in 1909, there were one saloon for every 300 people in the United States. There were more saloons than there were schools, libraries, churches, hospitals, theaters, or parks in the United States, which demonstrated to many prohibitionists the severe problem that the states have with alcohol. Now, those were two of the largest groups in the temperance movement, but what about the people? More specifically, what did politicians think of this issue? Starting with Nebraska's William Jennings Bryan, he didn't initially believe in prohibition. However, in 1916, when he he resigned as Secretary of State because of President Wilson's war policies, did Bryan publicly support it. Woodrow Wilson had an unclear position regarding the prohibition movement in 1912, Wilson claiming that the Webb-Keenan Act was as far as he would go with the matter. The Webb-Keenan Act regulated the interstate transport of alcoholic beverages. Wilson soon pushed for prohibition with war tension and straightening. Theodore Roosevelt had an ambiguous position, and each side claimed that he support them. He believed that it should be a state matter rather than a federal affair. Both of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League made tremendous strides in a ban against alcohol, with many vouching for a constitutional amendment. An amendment needs approval from 36 states. This factor encouraged union members to go state to state campaigning, campaigning for one, and miraculously, it was ratified. On January 16, 1919, Nebraska, the home of William Jennings Bryan, became the 36th state to ratify the 18th Amendment. It would go into effect one year later. The 18th Amendment barred the manufacture, sale, and distribution of alcoholic beverages. It was finally ratified due to a growing hostility between the U.S. and Germany. With many beer manufacturers being German, it makes sense that people would advocate against them. As a matter of fact, attorney Wayne Wheeler reasoned that if one were to support German brews, it would be treason. The 18th Amendment was both hard to enforce and widely disapproved of. One should note, however, that it said nothing against the consumption of alcohol. This provided a loophole for booze lovers around the U.S. One of the many loopholes during this time involved obtaining an alcohol prescription from a pharmacy. This gave an option for citizens to drink and kept distilleries in business. Many people also began crafting drinks in their own homes. The grape industry flourished during this time due to an influx of people making wine in their kitchens. 
producing their own liquor or going to a pharmacy wasn't as popular as attending a speakeasy. Speakeasies were illegal bars or nightclubs that rose from the fall of legal bars. Alcohol was distributed without the worry of authorities intervening. Mobsters and bootleggers made fortunes out of these legal alcohol sales and participating in the black market. Loopholes were the beginning of their problems. The government had high hopes for the 18th Amendment and prohibition as a whole. Such hopes were primarily on an economic front. Many expected the price of household goods and property rents to fluctuate. Some hoped that the theaters would become even more popular and that gum, grape juice, and soda would become favorites. However, none of this happened, with entertainment and dining industries failing left and right. States were found in dire situations as well. Many states' revenue relied on liquor taxes. The federal government lost a total of $11 billion in revenues, meaning they had to rely on income tax revenue to help them keep them afloat. Well, Jake, it's safe to say that prohibition on the whole was a failure. It created more issues and spawned greater alcohol misuse than before. I completely agree. Financial disadvantages, illegal activities, and the collapse of industries demonstrate the downsides of the temperance movement and the flaws of altering the Constitution. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed your time with us. This was Elliot. This was Jake. And we're signing off. Thank you for listening to You've Got Mail.